Welcome to a Story That Works podcast, where we're going to write stories, share our work, and show you that if you want to write, all it takes is figuring out your own process. So go do the work, get your stories on the page, and confidently share them. Hi, I'm Rebecca. And I'm Caitlin. And this week, we're going to actually share with you our writing. But first, we're going to talk about all the things that come with writing your story and sharing it with other people. Scary. It is. I guess while writing this story, I learned a lot about what it means to like keep going. You know, even though I'd rather have trashed the story, walked away from it and never looked back, I obviously couldn't. And so it kind of taught me about, like you said in one of the other episodes, how you have just these running stories in your head. And I've never really, I mean, I have running stories in my head, but nothing connected and nothing that I'm like, oh, I can pull from that. Even though it didn't work in this story, maybe I can make it work in something else, like characters or setting or anything. And so by throwing away this like first idea and coming back to the same prompt, but in a different way, was really interesting for me. And it it taught me a lot about how I can move forward with my writing. So I have had to not only have this accountability in the podcast, but I've set a word count goal for myself and 500 words a day is something I can actually do and I celebrate by, you know, a star sticker in my planner. But I have only accomplished that by sitting down in my bed before going to bed and just typing up a bunch of stuff, which I suppose is kind of like, wow, I should be proud of what I've gotten if that's my process. But it's kind of taught me how to pick a better time to write, even though, I mean, that's really hard for me. Sometimes I want to do anything but write, even when I have the entire day open. And so in this process where I do have this sense of accountability, where I have to get the words done, I have to get the story written, it's showing me, okay, maybe sitting down right before bed trying to write this story isn't the best process. Yeah. I mean, I always used to write at night that was when my brain started working I mean that's still true that's always going to be true I'm a night person but now I have to get up and go to work at six in the morning so I have to go to bed early and so I don't really have any I used to have a routine of writing when I could fit it in and I kind of have to rethink that now which is stupid because I hate using my brain during the day (laughs) yeah I think it's I mean that's actually a really good point because some people have kids or have full-time jobs or have family members they're taking care of and I get a lot of people who tell me I can't find time to write I don't have time to write and I mean part of that is you're never going to find time to write you have to make the time not just like making the time but sometimes you will find that when you make the time that time isn't the right time for you Yeah. And yet you just have to force it to work, at least for the time being. I think, like, work through it, Mm -hmm. you know? Because, yeah, there are definitely times when you're, like, ready to roll and times when you're not. But if that's your only time, you kind of have to just train your brain, I guess. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's hard. It is. Not having time to write and also having too much time to write is just, like, a hindrance as well because Mm -hmm. there's no sense of structure. There's no sense of discipline there. You're just like, I have all the time in the world. And then it's, like, 24 hours later and you're like, well, shit, what happened? Yeah. And so you get these people who are super busy with their full-time jobs and kids and whatnot who are like, I wish I had all the time in the world. Then I could get my book done. And you get people like me who have, quote unquote, all the time in the world, but still 
don't get our writing done because too much time is just as much of a problem. It's kind of like the grass is greener on the other side. I mean, it's a different a different kind of problem. Oh, but... yeah. yeah. But there's still problems. There's still problems yeah. that you have to force yourself to work through. It's just like you do what you can because you feel compelled to write. I think it's like just not allowing your brain to be so high maintenance. Like, oh, I can only write like when the moon is at a certain point in the sky and the stars have aligned What in whatever way. Like, you have to adapt. That's just your resistance telling you not to. It's your brain using any excuse to not go back to the work. But ultimately, if you didn't want to do the work, you wouldn't come up with those excuses. Like, I feel like sometimes the things we want to do most are the things we're most averse to, the things we fight. People always talk about, like, oh, I was supposed to write today, so I cleaned my house. Mm-hmm. Like, which is true. And I don't know why that is. I think it's just, it's a combination of, like, writing is really intimidating and it's really draining, especially when things aren't working um, or when things aren't flowing. I don't think it's just writing. It's anything you feel called to do, I think. Like, it's this higher purpose that you feel for yourself. Some people it manifests as writing. Some people it's something else. But I think that there's this, uh, Stephen Pressfield calls it resistance. Natalie Goldberg calls it your monkey mind. It's it's this force within us that stops us from doing the work we feel most compelled to do. Well, I think writing is unique in its own way also because writers, I mean, we live in a perpetual state of self-doubt, rejection, procrastination, distraction. And I can't speak to like other people's passions because I don't live their lives. <laughs> but I feel like just writing is so specific to like set us up for these kind of struggles. And also because it's so solitary, you know, when you're aspiring or whatever, and you, you know, you're not on a deadline, no one's paying you to get your writing done at a certain time, like you create your own schedule, you create your own structure, and you create your own accountability and discipline you know if your passion is to go to a job every day like that's laid out for you you have to be there I can not write for three months and there's no tangible consequences to that I mean for me there are tangible consequences and that I start to go insane but <laughs> writing is it's it's madness in a lot of ways yeah and and it's so universal in the sense like no writer is like I've never struggled I love writing every time that I'm writing I'm happy I'm filled with joy like it's a struggle consistently with everyone but do you think that that's a mindset thing well I think I mean everything is a mindset thing everything in our lives is a mindset thing but writing is madness it's everyone says I I hate writing but I love having written I feel like there's something to changing that paradigm you know if we tell ourselves writing is hard and I hate doing it but I love having done it we train ourselves to be in this mindset to hate doing it it makes it that much harder like I think in a sense obviously like there is that built-in solitude but you have to live experiences in order to be able to write about them and so I don't think it's all solitude I think we have our own set of problems like just you know even personal things like how do we make money and how do we balance that with a job and all of these different things that kind of maybe come with that but ultimately like I think we have more choice over our lives over our writing than we think we do and so sometimes it's important to just say yeah writing is madness but I love doing it and just kind of tell yourself that over and over enough times that you at least will do the work even when you don't want to or even when you 
aren't doing it at your ideal time. Like right now, like I have to go back to the drawing board and kind of recall why I even do this. Yeah. You know, because I'm in such a severe rut. I think I started to get in the mind. I mean, I've always wanted to be published. Obviously, like every writer has a goal. There's an end game to what we do. But I think the second you start writing, thinking that like it's going to be your bread and butter, writing is not designed to make you rich. Writing is not designed to get you attention. It's not designed to get you Twitter Twitter followers. It's not designed to make you the next Suzanne Collins, J.K. Rowling. Like, that is great if that happens. And I think that that used to be my dream was to be super famous and, like, have my name on books and be on bestsellers lists and whatever. I actually, I struggle with the same thing because there is a reason we started writing in the first place. And sometimes I think when that reason is to be famous, to get your name on books, to see your books in the movies. It's really hard to keep coming back to the work when it's hard to do the work, right? Like you have to find joy in the work itself. And I've said this a couple of times, just the book deals, the agents, the movies, all of that is extra. As a writer, the only thing you have to do is write. And the only thing you have to do in order to get yourself to, to write is to find joy in the work. And however you need to do that. For me, I've, I've done the same thing. I come back to it over and over again. I ask myself, why am I doing this? And I think that's an important thing for other writers to do as well. What about sharing for you? Like, does it intimidate you to, to read your first draft to this audience of people you don't know right now? When we first started writing, I was like, this is going to be fine. I'm not scared. And then when I actually started writing it and it became something real, then it becomes pretty intimidating when I mean it took me a very long time when I was younger to even acknowledge myself as a writer much less let someone else read my writing and it was weird because when I was in college like I used to write in the corner of the library and no one knew that I was doing it and then I met someone else who was very vocal about their writing and very open about it and I read some of their work because they were like very willing to share it and I was like this isn't so difficult like this isn't like, it doesn't have to be such a secret. I remember the first time I shared my writing, I was terrified. And I did that thing where you're like, oh, it's not very good and blah, 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 blah. And people are like, why don't you just shut up and let me read it? But I think it's still scary. I think it's just natural. Like I get weirded out by people who aren't nervous about sharing their stories. Like, I feel like they live in a delusion. I try not to be nervous about it because there's nothing you can do the way somebody else is going to experience their story. I get really nervous with the comparison and with this idea that other people can then just like tear it apart. Yeah. Because I, I tend to be really, I don't know, I try to be careful with what I put on the page, but I know nothing is perfect. And I know that most of what people say about your stuff is really about them and not about you. Mm-hmm. And so that's, I, like, that's just something I try to keep in mind. And I also think the more that you share, the easier it gets. And so I share my writing with you because I know that you want me to succeed as much as you want to, or at least I I know I can trust you. I want you to fail. That's really my goal. But some people do. Like some people don't read your writing with your best interests in mind, you know? Right. But what I'm saying is I know I can trust you. And even you have said you need to rewrite this story. And when you get that enough times, you realize that it's not going to kill you. You know, it hurts. 
it sucks. It's not the most fun thing to hear, but you can survive it. I mean, it's good to condition yourself to get used to it because being a writer is to be rejected. Yeah. It's part of the game. Unless you get super lucky, you're going to be rejected so many times. Even, even if you are lucky, you're going to be rejected. Oh, yeah. And it, yeah, even if you're lucky, you're going to put work out there that people aren't going to like. You're n- There's never going to be a situation where everyone who reads your work is going to be like, this is amazing. Mm-hmm. Like some people just enjoy not liking things and you have to be okay with that. Yeah. And I think the same is true for yourself. Like you're going to like certain parts of what you write. You're not going to like other parts. And you kind of have to get comfortable with saying, I am okay as a person, but I need to fix what's on the page, you know, and and it's Mm -hmm. okay that what's on the page is not perfect. Oh, yeah. Well, I think my biggest fear is like that I'm myself am living in a delusion. And some criticism, some critiques always hit harder than others. Like I had a full manuscript request back in October and I was really excited about it. And the critique I got for why it was rejected was like the one thing that I thought I was doing well with. Yeah. And that was my line writing. And I was I've never had any like wavering confidence in my line writing. Like that was always something that I was really happy with. So I think the scariest part of getting critiqued is when you really have to face something that you weren't ready for. Because if you tell me things that like maybe I already knew or things that I need to hear or things that are really constructive in a way that I can understand, that's great. And I really appreciate that. But when you tell me something that really like shakes my foundation, that's always really scary, especially when there's no validation at the end of it. Yeah. And I think it also stands to be said that writing is very subjective. Oh my gosh. Very. Completely. And I think that that kind of critique with no explanation for it, I feel like that's more crushing than anything else. And the goal of right. this isn't isn't to do that. When you talk to writers, if you are a first reader for somebody or if you are a writer, like you almost have to strengthen yourself as a writer against the criticism because you're going to get stuff that's all over the board. You have to have thick skin. Like people not liking your work can't break you. Mm -hmm. You just can't let it. You're never going to make it. I hate, like we have talked, like when we see people on Twitter who are like, oh my gosh, I got my first rejection. Will everyone please tell me that it's going to be okay? Like that's not, no. You're you're not going to make it very long if you need hand-holding that early in the game. Because, like, there's more common. Mm-hmm. And that's part of why I've, I've started this short story practice is to submit as many short stories as possible, to get as many rejections as possible on stuff that I can quickly turn around and change and rewrite and learn from. The more I can hear, no, this isn't working, and here's why, the better off I'll be mm-hmm. to learn those skills. I think short story is fundamental too because it's like a scene in a novel so it's fundamental it's a fundamental skill as a writer you're always going to be your own worst enemy like that's just the truth unless someone's trying to kill you (laughs) or like the creepy people sending you dms on twitter it's such a disservice not to share your writing to just let it sit there and let it rot i used to think that there was nothing new that i could learn that i had it all down and then people read my writing and was like girl this isn't as good as you think it is and that's just how you grow that's how you get better i agree completely and with that said i'll go ahead and read my story get it let's go let's party i'm ready everyone wondered about the couch in the woods how it got there how long it had been there and how long before it would decompose who had taken a lover there for a private moment even though it was in the middle of a forest that most people had hiked to at some point in their lives the town was only so big after all but it didn't rot and no one could articulate exactly when it had arrived. Tommy said his grandmother had told his mother about playing on it as a child, yet it still looked as if it had been dropped off, expertly delivered by two sets of careful hands, just days ago. It was as if a shield protected the intricately decorated purple fabric such that everything and nothing touched her all at once. 
No mysterious stains, no animal poo, not even the fallen leaves were ever found in her cushions. Some said she was saving herself for the perfect moment, as if she expected to serve a specific purpose before she'd leave, either by letting the elements take her or by moving on. More than once, someone wanted to bring her home, to give her a place to live and a family who loved her. But before they got the chance, they would mysteriously forget about the couch, never to visit the woods again, and to think everyone who mentioned her only spoke in odd metaphors. Everyone in town knew, at least those who hadn't tried to claim her as their own, that the couch was there, that she provided refuge, safety. Some treated her as a wishing well, but few ever really took her up on the offer. Shirley had gone to the couch at five to ask for a pony. It never came. Philip always visited when he wanted to figure out what to say to the particular boy he liked. It sometimes worked. But it was Mabel who visited more out of need than anything else. And she never asked for ponies. Never asked for anything, really. Just went to spill her secrets, without realizing just how valuable they were. Not that she liked spending her nights in the middle of a forest, exactly. There was no telling what it would do to her appearance the next day, and high schoolers were unforgiving. But it was either that or stay in the house with her mother's unpredictable boyfriend, Chris. She'd take her chances. And, after the fifth time staying overnight on the couch in the middle of the woods a half mile from her home, she learned what to pack. Even had a system. Almost looked forward to it. Hello, couch. I hear it's going to be a cold night. Though it was fall, winter had its way of creeping up on you. She wouldn't be able to stay on the couch much longer. Not that it would do her anything to worry now. Instead, she pulled a blanket from her bag as if she were offering it up, but wrapped herself in it and grabbed a book and a tiny flashlight. The package of her protein bar crinkled like the falling leaves, but the noise blended in with all the other sounds. She carefully collected the garbage to throw away when she got home the next day. It took her all of 30 minutes to fall asleep, the forest acting as a white noise machine, but the crunch of leaves and snapping of twigs that couldn't have come from animals woke her up an hour later. I know you're out here, and Mabel instantly knew it was Chris. How had he known she wasn't at her friend's? She'd been so careful with the note, had made Chrissy promise to lie for her. Promises that big weren't easily broken. Mabel's heartbeat filled her ears, and she tasted iron before realizing she'd chewed her cheek raw. A flashlight blinded her before she had the chance to decide what to do. The forest grew scary to her in the pitch black, something she'd never thought she'd feel. Time slowed. Chris stumbled, got right back up. He was so close, Mabel could smell the booze mixed with sweat. She thought about calling out, even knowing it would be helpless. She thought back to biology classes. The idea of fight or flight clung to her, offered her an explanation for the complete lack of control she now had over her limbs. At least she could use it as an excuse later, she told herself. Chris screamed. He was coming straight toward her, arms outstretched, but when he touched the couch, something in him changed. His expression moved from anger to confusion. Still uncontrollably stuck, wrapped in the blanket, Mabel could only watch as he turned, dropped the flashlight, and started walking away from her. It took another three hours for her to calm down enough to fall back asleep. When she woke up, something told her to go home, to make sure her mother was all right. So she did. As teenagers do, she let the door slam when she walked into the kitchen. Her mother was cleaning, of all things, something Mabel couldn't remember her doing in years. Mom, where's Chris? She didn't want to ask, expecting him to be right behind her, ears ringing from being talked about. Her mother went on wiping the counter, but paused at the question. Who? Chris. Who's Chris? Oh, Mabel, were you making up stories in your head again? Her mother looked at her half-impressed and half-pitying like she was trying to understand how her daughter's mind worked. And, not for the first time, Mabel wondered if she had made it all up. The way Chris made her feel, whether or not he even existed, spending the night on the couch in the woods. Never mind, I'll be back. Her mother said nothing as Mabel ran out the door and back to the woods. And, like she'd known in her gut, 
had felt the moment her mother asked the question. The couch was gone. Not a pile of rotted wood, but disappeared. Somehow moved on without a single trace, leaving behind only vague memories in everyone but Mabel. Your turn. My turn. Okay. Okay, so my story's a little longer, and I hope no one comes for me because I stole the, my main character's name from Doctor Who. I think that's brilliant, so. Okay. Atraxi couldn't stand the sight of human blood. Not on her hands, not mixed into the dirt, not pouring out of their fragile skin. Everything about it made her stomach lurch. She preferred the simplistic familiarity of the midnight ink that ran through her own veins. Human's blood with such drama, such desperate bravado as it dripped from the crystalline arrowheads of the goblin tribes. It made a spectacle of death, one that stained the earth red with a petty refusal to be forgotten. It painted her dreams, made a canvas of the inside of her eyelids, a spiteful masterwork of resentment. All around her, the forest breathed as that damned blood dried into the fabric of her uniform. It was still slick on her knuckles and palms, no time spared to clean them with her arrow held at the ready. Find them, kill them. Orders were simple. Creeping across the forest floor, stealth was Atraxi's native tongue. She moved through the thick maze of trees, her footsteps nothing but small gasps upon every loose leaf and broken branch. Around her, the night bent to her will as she listened, watched, smelled. No survivors. No mercy. Simple. There was still a phantom hint of smoke lingering in the night air. The human refugee camp would be nothing but ash and discarded bones by morning, though the dying screams would live inside the wind for years. It was never enough to just let it burn. Goblin warfare was only satisfied with slaughter. Those who had survived the initial attack flowed through the cornfields and into the mountains, hunted down by Atraxi's brother and his troop of killers. It was unlikely any of the humans were foolish enough to seek refuge in the forest, but she'd been sent into the trees to make sure. There was someone out there. She could smell the tangy iron between the branches. A heartbeat raced across the still night. The trees parted for Atraxi at her will, stretching the dormant power that prickled just beneath her skin. The forest was an old wench, offering no clear path through any of the overgrown entanglement of skeletal woods. It made the footprints so easy to follow it was barely a hunt at all, merely an unfortunate game of hide-and-seek. She found the girl in a small clearing, bent over upon an old couch, so out of place amidst the mess of the forest. Her long black hair fell in strings over her face as she held her hands over her mouth. There were shallow cuts across her cheeks from running through the rogue branches, and a swollen, severely pregnant belly protruded from the ashen cloth of an ill-fitted dress. Atraxi raised her arrow just as the girl raised her eyes to the huntress before her. Atraxi pictured her own face— leathery, scaled, in the color of dried leaves, and the foggy mirror of her small chamber back in the goblin caves. Her reflection was made of human nightmares, everything countering any idea of beauty. Even soaked in sweat and dripping that hideous red, Atraxi knew this girl was lovely. She had not known her own ugliness until she had seen a human for the first time, and though her pointed ears gave her the hearing of a bat and her hooked nose could pick up scents for miles, she'd allowed herself to envy the soft freckles and bright eyes of the first girl she'd killed. Keep your hand steady, her father told her. Aim for the heart, just like I showed you. It was part of her training, just as it had been for every other goblin child born in time to wield a bow for the revolution. Their tribes had clawed their way out from a life of darkness beneath the earth, and humans were the only things standing in their way when they finally emerged into the light. Atraxi would never forget the look on the girl's face when she aimed her arrow. She had been older, eye-level with Atraxi when brought to her knees. Terror warred with disbelief and gave way to denial. Atraxi had always been small delicate compared to the boys she fought with. Surely she did not have it in her to slay something so fair. 
The girl's blood fell from her in a single river down her chest, the color so shocking it called up the contents of Atraxi's stomach as she heaved into the dirt. That girl had never truly believed Atraxi would kill her, not until the very moment the arrow finally flew. The girl before her now was different. The world was different. Slowly, she let her hands fall from her lips and rested them upon her stomach. Atraxi could see the strain in her trembling muscles as a contraction tore through her body. Fate and timing were an unkind pairing. A mask of agony lived in shades of red across her skin. It was one thing goblins and human women had in common. Birth was pain. Her own mother had died in the effort to expel Atraxi's warrior brother, a boy so thirsty for violence it was only fitting that his life began at the same time as his kill count. The girl stared at Atraxi, all that misery ripping through her while her gaze traveled to the perfect aim of the arrowhead. There was fear there. Yes, of course there was. Atraxi watched emotions scatter across her beautiful face, and there was so much more than the simplicity of dread. She was defiant. She was angry. Most of all, more than anything, she was ready. Ready to fight. To die. The pain was so visible in every forced breath that Atraxi felt it in her own womb, but the girl held it all in. She made no sounds, did not allow e even one cry to break the silence of the forest. Atraxi took a step forward, arrow steady. The couch on which the girl's body clenched and wilted was decrepit, a piece of a different time. Vines had grown up around and through the cushions, entombing it as part of the forest itself. Atraxi could just barely make out the faded pattern, an atrocious blend of pink roses on a sky-blue backdrop. Had someone just forgotten it out here? Was there once a roof, a home, that sheltered whoever possessed it in its prime? Many humans retreated when the goblin tribes arose from the earth ten years ago, leaving the forest to grow far too dense in their absence. Why do we kill them? She'd asked her father when he gave her her first bow. It had been a foolish question, as it was foolish to ask questions at all. He'd looked down at her, his harsh eyes scarred with an inexplicable hatred. Because we can. Finally, the girl could not contain her pain any longer. She gasped at the start of another contraction, her breathing ragged like a dying animal. It would only get worse, and soon every goblin warrior would hear her screams. Atraxi could feel the girl digging in her own throat for words, though it didn't matter when they failed her. The goblin tribes had never bothered to learn the human tongue. Perhaps she meant to curse her, call her a coward or a monster. Not to beg, though. Of that, Atraxi was certain. Blood was blooming through the fabric of the girl's dress. The baby was coming. Moonlight sparkled in the thick redness that swam down her legs into the dirt. But this was not a show. This was a battle all her own. Lowering her arrow, Atraxi reached for the knife in her belt. Next to the girl was a bag. The provisions she'd packed strewn out upon the forest floor. Two canteens of water, food wrapped in yellow cloth. A bag clearly meant to sustain two people. They'll hate us, her father had said. We're nothing but monsters to them, so that's what we'll be. The forest tugged at her bones. Never rebellious, never disobedient. She'd never as much as hesitated to simply do as she was told. Today had been no different. It was not the girl's piercing glare, nor was it the innocence of the child breaking its way out of her. It was that damned silence. Even the most ruthless goblin women screamed like demons at the crest of labor. She'd seen the men in her tribe screech at much less. It just seemed wasteful. The blood on her knuckles cracked as her fingers released the knife to drop at the girl's feet. All around them, the earth started to shift. Atraxi clenched her fists and called up every root the dirt could spare, eyes never leaving the bewildered expression that overtook the girl when the ground spat out this untold goblin magic. They'd said it was a useless power. One cannot forge an army of tree bark and saplings. The goblin tribes had no use for the roots that grew from the vibrations in their fingertips when the earth from which they arose belonged to the humans. They adopted violence as their enchantment, vowing all loyalty to arrowheads and the blood they spilled. Twisting her fingers through the air, Atraxi built a fortress out of the forest. 
She gathered the willing roots and molded them around the girl. The vines slithered out of the couch and wrapped around what had now formed a brand new tree. They picked up the knife and placed it on the girl's lap. All she could do was watch as Atraxi concealed her inside, her eyes like small renderings of the moon. She fell out of sight as the tree reached towards the indifferent stars. She could scream now, all she wanted, all she needed. And then, when she was ready, she cut herself out. No human weapon was as sharp as Goblin Crystal, and no part of any weathered forest was strong enough to resist. Atraxi had a feeling she could manage it. She'd tell her brother she'd found nothing. No trace, no tracks. They'd move on to find the next battle and the world would likely fold in on itself before the girl's child grew up to be properly afraid of it. As she left, the forest parted for her once again. The magic in her black blood settled back into place, as did the silence. Thanks for listening to this episode of A Story That Works. For all the past episodes, the show notes, or to connect, visit astorythatworks.com. If you'd like to support the show, click subscribe and leave us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. As always, keep writing. Keep writing.